I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of Trade Guys, we'll talk the first rare in-person conversation between Chinese and U.S. commerce officials, China and Brazil's deal to bypass the U.S. dollar in their transactions, and the latest IPAF ministerial in Detroit. All that and more on Trade Guys. Hi, Trade Guys. I'm back again after a long hiatus to uh, replace Andrew. A lot's happened since then. I've had a graduation. And also, I'm officially full-time here at the show chair, which means that Scott and Bill are going to have to put up with me for a little while longer. Um, and what's great about this is that Andrew always seems to manage to leave this podcast in my hands when about a million things are happening in the trade world, including in this week. So we're going to try to get the highlights at the very least, starting with... At last, some face-to-face communication between Chinese and U.S. trade officials. Chinese Commerce Minister Wang Wentao's trip, the first highest-level visit to the U.S. by a Chinese official in two years, where he met with Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo here in D.C., and then U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai at the sidelines of the APEC Forum in Detroit last week. So, trade guys, can we unpack these meetings? What are the main takeaways here? Did officials on both sides say and do anything substantial that would indicate some positive signs, at least for the trade relationship? Well, first of all, Thibault, welcome to the full-time uh, Schulcher staff. For those of you listening, Thibault got a shout-out yesterday from our uh, president and CEO, Dr. Hamry, who referred called him Shakespearean because of his name. Thibault tells me that the Shakespearean character of the same name is somebody who tried to kill Romeo. So I'm not sure that's exactly a compliment, but I'm also not sure that Dr. Hamry knew that. But anyway, uh, welcome, and we look forward to working with you uh, mostly in English, but perhaps occasionally in uh, other languages as well. On the meeting, um, you know, I guess the good news is they had a meeting, and that's not a small accomplishment, particularly when it comes to China and economics. As you pointed out, Thibault, we haven't had one in a couple of years, here anyway, and so it's past time for a dialogue. It sounds like the meetings were civil. Not table pounding and screaming, which has happened in the past. At the same time, basically, they were a litany of complaints where we explained in detail what the Chinese were doing wrong, and they explained in detail what we were doing wrong. We have accused them publicly of economic coercion. CSIS has done a study on this from the the economics program, and their response has been that we are the real coercers. You know, look at our sanctions program, look at our export controls on China. I'm not sure any greater understanding was reached, aside from both sides now have gotten clearly directly the message from the other side about what they think. You have to go through that. Having been through it, maybe we can start a series now of meetings in which we get beyond that and start having substantive discussions about what we can do about some of these things. But that didn't happen last week. Yeah, it's uh, one of these things. <clears throat> First of all, this is an unusual year because it is... Uh, the United States is hosting many of the APEC meetings. Now, we've talked about APEC here before. APEC stands for Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. And uh, jokingly, uh, four nouns in search of a verb. But it's uh, it's one of those things that there are 21 member economies. Interestingly, among those member economies are the United States and China, but Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Russia 
all show up at ministerial meetings whenever APEC calls them, because they all have APEC ministers and in their functional areas. And so the United States can be host to a lot of meetings that will have their share of tension. This year, maybe the year to rename it instead of economic cooperation, it's economic coercion. The C, C could stand for either one. Usually APEC meetings are quiet and civil and often almost boring because the organization moves based on consensus. It moves at the pace of the slowest member on most issues. It does move positively for most matters, but this year, the, the meetings are going to create their share of interest and attention, much as this one did. But I agree with Bill. It, it, you know, it's nice to be beyond polite information sharing to the airing of grievances, but there has to be a step where the, where there is a way to direct the the two economies to a place where you begin to resolve some of these issues. And I just don't see that in place. There's almost always been a forum to both diffuse tensions and resolve conflicts. We're, we don't seem to be in the resolution business at the moment. So unless I missed something. I have to have a moment of pedantry here and and make a correction. I, Scott, I don't think it's two nouns in search of a verb. I think it's four adjectives in search of a noun. But it's the, uh, sort <laughs> of the same well. point. Yes, that's right. There's not much action going on in this particular body, but it, it, it is missing something. No, you're sort of waiting for council, forum, organization, something at the end that it's not there. Fair enough. Well, okay. It doesn't seem like much has been going on, at least in these meetings, but is there any way for them to build upon them? Well, there's there's not an obvious channel, and there have been in the past. Many administrations have used one of often one of the cabinet officials. So there was the strategic economic dialogue, which Treasury Secretary Paulson led in the Bush 43 administration. And there was a strategic and economic dialogue, which Secretary Clinton led in the Obama administration. And the Trump administration was much more focused on trade issues. But it was clear the issues that they wanted to work on, they worked on them quite diligently. USTR Lighthizer was tended to be the cabinet official leading the actions. And uh, so there, there were uh, lots of structures to, to get the meetings both in place and to get issues on the table that might be resolved. That so far is still missing, uh, as, as I see it, from the Biden administration. So I don't know if they, they want one or not at this point. I had hoped that what would come out of this would be a process. It normally, I've, and I've said this in the past, you know, a process is what you do when you don't know what to do or when you can't agree on anything. Set up a process for further meetings. But this is a case where a process is badly needed. And as Scott just pointed out, we've had them before. It goes back before President Clinton mm-hmm. had the JCCT and, and another parallel one as well. And they had two. And it's hard to identify actual deliverables that came out of any of those meetings. But what did come out of them was an ongoing dialogue where some problems were actually solved. When I was at Commerce in, in the 90s, we I participated in some of the JCCT meetings, that stands for Joint Committee Commission on Commerce and Trade, that were jointly chaired by the Secretary of Commerce and the Vice Premier. And, you know, what, what businesses discovered, it took them a couple of years to discover, this, this was an annual event, but what they discovered was that if you came in and you armed the American secretary and, and the staff with a complaint that was detailed and specific and oftentimes something about, you know, Chinese bureaucrats exceeding their authority or being out of step with China's policy. The Chinese side would actually make something happen and they would go back and fix it. And by the end of, of Clinton's time, it actually had become a channel for dealing right. entirely with small issues, not large policy differences. But that was not you know, not to be sneezed at. I mean, there were a number of companies that had very specific problems solved. 
because they could get ministerial level attention. And, you know, we've sort of not only lost that, we've lost the forum for bigger picture dialogue as well. So I was kind of hoping they would announce, you know, we've set up an arrangement. It has to have a new name because you could never have the same name as your predecessor. But, you know, some name that says, you know, we will meet annually. We will meet every six months. You know, I'll go there. He'll come here, whatever. And they didn't do that. What that means is what we're probably going to see instead is a sort of an odd hoax series of meetings, usually, you know, on the uh, on the margins of some bigger meeting where both sides have to show up for some other reason. Look for it again, you know, the Apex Summit in November, you know, the, the mm-hmm. actors will all be there. But if you don't institutionalize these things, uh, what you get is constant replays. So we'll have another meeting in November. It'll probably be another meeting where we complain to each other about all the bad things each of us is doing. You know, it's cathartic, but it never moves the ball forward. So I'm I'm kind of disappointed in that. Yeah, they could call it Festivus, uh, at least partial Festivus, because there is an area of grievances. We don't have a test of strength yet, but... Uh, uh, it is definitely an area of, an area of grievances. Area of grievances. We've got it in a full blast. Of course, the difference between the past processes and these is that there weren't the uh, impending risk of people pounding their fists and screaming at each other. So we may have to get over that barrier first. Anyways, speaking of China, we've had... Other high-level meetings, they haven't been flexing their diplomatic muscles just here. They've also turned to the Southern Hemisphere, of course, to Brazil. PRC and Brazil, both members of the BRICS, have entered into an agreement which allows businesses from the two countries to bypass the U.S. dollar as an intermediary transacting tools. And that comes after the central banks of both countries signed a memo that established that clearinghouse in Brazil, that, that bank... Uh, chosen by the PRC with liquidity in the yuan to clear foreign exchange directly. And so now, as we know, the U.S. dollar has been the the world's dominant reserve currency for a long time. But does this change mark another meaningful shift in in world trade dynamics, countries in the developing world seeking alternative means to conduct their global financial operations? And if that's the case, what does that mean for U.S. trade? Is this something that U.S. businesses should be concerned about in in Brazil or elsewhere? I have an old friend who's panicked at this. He thinks this is an earth-shaking event that will ultimately lead to the demise of the dollar as an international currency. Most of our group of people that argue with him about this are telling him he's wrong, including me. Um, I think it's a signal, though, that you're going to see more of this. You're going to see, because sometimes it's a defense against U.S. sanctions. You know, if you're not traded in U.S. dollars, if your transactions are not denominated in dollars, you don't need to use the U.S. financial system to uh, complete your transactions. You really are not entirely, but relatively immune from U.S. sanctions. So if you're a, you know, if you're a miscreant or a sanctions target, it's tempting to try to do this. I think Lula's approach is different. I think he wants to develop a stronger economic relationship with China. And, you know, he wanted to do that when he was president previously. So kind of that's not a surprise. This is a, you know, an easy thing to agree to. My view, and and, Scott can tell me I'm wrong, but I don't think it's going to amount to a whole lot in in concrete terms. There will be real RMB transactions and people on both sides will be happy. But, you know, I've maintained for a long time that Yun is, it can't be really an international currency unless it's freely convertible because people that engage in international transactions, you know, they want to, they want to put their money in some place where they know they can get it back. Uh, and that's why the, you know, the, the United States didn't set out with a campaign to become world's reserve currency. You know, it happened. And the main reason it happened, I think, is because 
everybody knew that dollars were were safe. The value was uh, was safe. It fluctuated, but you know it wasn't going to go the way of you know hyperinflation as we've seen in some countries. Uh, and we knew the uh, U.S. government paid its debts, which as of last night and the debt limit, we can be reassured about again. And you know, and you also knew because of the way the U.S. economies operate operates that if you were storing your money here, you could get it back. And with China, you don't know those things, particularly with their policy of weaponizing trade. You don't know if they're mad at you. They're just going to they could freeze your funds. So I just don't see it as a replacement. But I do see it as chipping away at at the U.S. monopoly. Bill's right. There is de-dollarization going on. Uh, It's going on in part because of U.S. policy, uh, because financial sanctions have been our tool of sometimes first resort. Uh, but certainly we're using them to a greater extent, trying to exclude people from the global financial system to the extent that it's possible uh, from the U.S. And, and actually, the U.S. has uh, a number of levers there. But every, for every action, there's a reaction. Where the RMB is ever going to be the reserve currency, Bill's right, convertibility is a factor. But think about you know what's money. Money has three characteristics. It's a store of value. It's a unit of measure. And it's a means of exchange. And money can be about anything that meets those three criteria, and there is no perfect money. Now, one of the reasons the dollar is ubiquitous in as a standard of, of uh, exchange is that it is a store of value. Dollar is still the least bad asset to hold in the world. It has a relatively stable value over the time period that, that most traders care about. So as a store of value, dollar holds up better, and it is internationally, it is exchangeable, uh, unlike the RMB. But it's not the only unit of measure. It's not the only means of exchange. And frankly, a trade of any sort can settle in whatever form of money the buyer and the seller agree to. So it is happening more because of U.S. policy. It'll happen in places like Brazil, who in their commercial activities with China. It's happening a lot for the buyers of Russian oil. So Russia is selling a lot of oil, for instance, to India. And those trades are in rupees at the moment or or rubles. Uh, Same with the oil that is being sold by Russia to China. Those are in RMB or rubles. And so there's there are a number of trades that probably happened in petrodollars a year ago that are not happening in petrodollars today. Uh, so so that's happening. But the thing is, Brazil is led by Lula, who is a man of the labor movement. That was his his he cut his teeth in politics in the labor movement, and he's very skillful at poking and prodding his opponents. I've always, he's amusing to watch a great politician. He's an excellent politician, but he always finds a way to goad the U.S. and goad the the, the West in general uh, about policy. And this is one of these things. Whether or not it's going to catch on, whether or not it's going to be everything. Probably not, but uh, but Lula's a great salesman for the global South in many ways, and uh, he's feeling his oats. Finally, I would say that there is a, an opportunity here for Brazil. I don't know if they will capture it, but the increased commerce between China and Brazil gives Brazil another opportunity to globalize. They actually were by the in the first round of technology, communication and information technology globalization, Brazil kind of wound up on the outside looking in because they held on to their import substitution policies and held on to high tariffs for a very long time. So they didn't join the supply chain revolution of the of the 90s and, and aughts. 
This is the second chance, okay? And they, they obviously produce a lot of commodities and agricultural products that are of interest to the, to the Chinese. The Chinese produce consumer goods of interest to Brazilians. And if they do it right, this could be another, sh another shot at making their economy more open and more efficient. Whether it'll happen or not, your guess is as good as mine. Well, the thing to keep in mind, though, is that dealing with China, which has been long seeking greater influence in Latin America, uh, has ended up being, uh, you know, a bit of a mixed blessing. And I think the Latin American nations are at various stages of figuring that out and trying to deal with it. I think we talked before, we've, I think Scott in the past has, has quoted uh, Larry Summers about, actually it was more about American trade policy, but we should talk about the first half of it too. Uh, what Larry's quote was, you know, if, you, if you're a developing country, you talk to the Chinese, they build an airport. You talk to the Americans, you get a lecture. Well, you know, in the past, when we've ranted about American trade policy, we referred to the second half of that. But you ought to take a look at the first half. You know, you do get an airport. Or you get a railroad, or you get, you know, any number of things. But Something actually beneficial. Yeah, yeah. Yes, but there are strings. Yes. First of all, for, a lot, for the, a lot of the infrastructure projects, Chinese have a history of bringing their own workers. So the target country, the host country, doesn't always get the jobs that it's expecting, the construction jobs that it's expecting. Second, the projects are, for the most part, designed to benefit uh, the Chinese in the sense that the railroad goes from from the mine or the source of, or the farms, the source of whatever the Chinese want to the port. And so if you're buying Brazilian produce or Brazilian minerals, that's the right thing. Uh, the extent to which it contributes to the overall growth of the economy is a different story. And the third problem that other countries have encountered is debt. And that's not built into um, currency, the currency issue we're discussing. But if you look at the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, these things are not grants, they're loans. And a lot of them contain a clause that says if the country defaults, the Chinese take over the asset, which would be the airport, you know, the railway or whatever. And the most commonly cited case of that is, is Sri Lanka, where the Chinese took over the port of Hamantota, which they were building on the, it's on the southeastern side of Sri Lanka because the Sri Lankans had defaulted. So does that matter? You know, you can argue that both ways. I would argue that, you know, if you wait five years, that port will probably be a Chinese naval base, and that has security implications for us. It's not now, but it's theirs, and they can decide what they want to do with it. A subject, you know, they have to deal with the government. But so these things are not unmixed blessings. They're nice, shiny goodies, you know, being dangled in front of the countries, but uh, they come with with Hidden and not so hidden costs. Uh, one and debt is actually an interesting uh, measure to see w in what denomination that is held. Brazil's making a lot of the real, but they're big, one of their biggest companies, Vale, forty-three billion in annual sales and sixty-five thousand employees. I checked their balance sheet; almost all their debt is held in U.S. dollars. So that's a that's a Brazilian champion. But when they when they when they issue bonds, they're in dollars. So, right. so what I'm hearing here is not necessarily bad news for U.S. trade in general. It might be bad news for policymakers who are trying to weight financial sanctions. Uh, and we have to look out for the results in a geostrategic lens at the very least. I mean, the thing for people to watch is there, I think there is a trend here. You're going to see more and more of these things happening. And it's, you know, it's like sand leaking out of the bag. It's, it, it's a slow trend. And I think for a long time, it won't make much difference, but at some point, maybe it will. We'll have to see. No, Bill's right, and and this is you know we call we call it the petrodollar uh, only because 
uh, Saudi Arabia in 1973 guaranteed that all oil trades, so they're the largest exporter of the largest traded commodity, 60 million barrels a day of oil are traded. Saudi Arabia said, we'll only do trade. In 1973, they said, we'll only do trades in dollars. That's, that's where the phrase, the petrodollar comes from. And that's why it's so important as, as the standard of measure in international trade. Well, about a month ago, the finance minister of Saudi Arabia said that they would begin, they would consider trades in something other than dollars. So this bill sand out of a bag analogy. And so there, there are steps. We're, we're living in a multipolar world. Nothing lasts forever. But this is, there are some of the things that held together over the long run, like oil trade, are changing probably out of sight of the average, the average listener. We'll keep looking out for those changes in the future. But to get into our last topic, we've had another high-level meeting for U.S. trade negotiators recently, also in Detroit. I'm talking, of course, about the last IPEF ministerial. The participating countries have concluded an IPEF pillar for the first time since the framework was lost in Tokyo last year. Uh, and that would be the supply chain pillar. So what's the content of the agreement, Trade Guys, and what does it look like in practice? Well, look, it's a it's a it's a general agreement, and mostly I think that it's worth reading because it's it's basically a voluntary agreement for, for cooperation at this point. But my view of IPEF is we should we we're well past the point where we should be disappointed with results. We should just lower our expectations across the board because we're not offering anything substantive on ex- on exchange. You know, we're not really engaging in negotiations. We're not offering market access or any of the things we typically do to get important results in foreign commerce. So I think it's mostly a, a lump of polite information sharing. Maybe I'm being too cynical, Bill. Is that possible? <laughs> uh, no, it's not. Okay. But Thank you. I, I'm marginally more optimistic. I mean, the, 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 uh, it's hard to parse the rhetoric here and figure out exactly how this is going to play out. What that particular pillar has done is they agreed to create three new committees, bodies, whatever, call them what you will, on supply chains. One was a sort of a policy council, which presumably would help the countries act in concert on supply chain policy issues. The second one was an emergency communications channel specifically to deal with emergencies, the obvious kind of thing being earthquakes or, you know, climate related events that suddenly disrupt or COVID would be the, the classic recent case that massively disrupts supply chains and all countries are scrambling to figure out what to do. And this would be a, an information sharing channel that would help overcome, you know, the, the gaps that form. And the third one is an advisory board on uh, addressing labor shortages and worker rights, which I'm sure it was the U.S. was pushing for. And we'll see if that ends up amounting to anything. That's not meaningless. I mean, as, as Scott said, you know, it's a low bar. But they got over it, so good good on them for getting over it. The Labor Board raises kind of an interesting procedural question. Is there going to be enough there that will increase congressional calls to review and vote on the agreement? You know, the USMCA labor provisions, which are probably gold standard from the U.S. point of view, which include a rapid response mechanism and and you know binding commitments, uh, and which has been used, I think, quite effectively by USTR to get make changes in Mexican labor practices. That, of course, was approved. I mean, that's part of the USMCA agreement. Whether you could do the same thing without going to Congress, I'm skeptical about that. I think I know Congress's answer, which would be no, you can't. We have to review and approve. And there's precedent, USMCA. So I think the result is it's going to be short of that. And it's going to be, a, you know, a place where, you know, we can complain and but nothing 
nothing will not necessarily happen. You know, if, if you want to get a little more enthusiastic about the big picture, though, you know, they agreed to something. That's not small cheese. There's four pillars, and it's been, well, more than a year since it was announced, but it's, it's, it's an accomplishment. And it would have been nice to see more indications of progress on the other pillars as well. The language about what they're doing there is a lot vaguer. And of course, a lot of the tougher issues are elsewhere. This has always been considered the, the easiest one to deal with because there are so many common interests uh, among the parties. There's a difference, a little bit of a difference in perspective. I think the U.S. is interested in figuring out who makes what so we know where we can go when we're short of stuff. That's fine for us. I think the developing country members are more interested in how can we become part of American supply chains. Those two goals are not at odds with each other. They're compatible, but there's a difference in emphasis there. But they all hinge on whether companies, in the end, are going to be willing to provide information to the government. Yes, and I, look, the companies are, are trying to get to a, a more diversified, a, a less less exposed supply chain position, whether that's a China plus one strategy or they're developing sort of irregardless of the, the national affiliations. Uh, so Bill's right in that sense. If, if there's enough information here uh, that's disclosed to be helpful to companies who are pursuing those objectives anyway, this, this, could, this could be beneficial. But it's, it's also uh, correct to say that what the developing countries want out of this and what the U.S. wants out of it are not exclusive. You can both can achieve what they're trying to to achieve here. Exactly. Thanks, guys. That was a lot of topics to tackle in one go, but I'm glad I was back for this one. And we'll see you next week, where we'll be talking to former Ambassador Chrétien with the Canadians, which will make for an interesting episode as well, I think. But reassuring all our listeners, we will be doing it in English. Yes, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I'll see you guys. Well, thanks. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.